Some people try to spend a lot of time in the beginning, really kind of really nailing out the equity and all of these other things because that's what they read. Others just kind of jump right into it and, and that comes later. I think that what you want to do is put together an agreement of understanding what you're going to do, what I'm going to do, and how that's going to split what the day-to-day -day is going to look like. Because in the end, you want to have, especially if it's co-founders, you want to have complementary skills. But I think you don't want to spend too much time up front on you know, the structure of the company, because ultimately you need to find product market fit. And you can keep revisiting the structure of that company as you grow, but you just really want to try to get, do we want to work together? Can we find a fit? Most of the time there's a problem you're trying to solve, but how you solve it, is it going to stick? And I think that needs to be the area that you start with. That was Shelly Perry, seasoned operator turned investor, board director, and scale-up guru. From Denver Broncos to Silicon Valley unicorns, Shelly is the best Wrangler West of the Mississippi. She is the go-to expert for everything scale-up, and I'm super excited to talk with her. Giddy up, folks, and welcome to this week's episode of Capital Geek. Shelly, hello. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a long time coming, so I'm uh, excited to be here. Well, to be honest, I'm so impressed by you. I've been a little nervous about having you on the show. And so I kind of wanted to beta test it and make sure we had the kinks worked out before I brought you on and looked silly in front of you. So that's how we got here today. I can't tell you how much I appreciate having you here. I'm super excited about this new segment we're going to do. As I think I mentioned to you, we're kicking off a mini series on topics that are relevant to scaling up as you're moving your startup from early stage and growing through the different growth stages. And today we're going to talk about sort of the basics of getting started forming a company and how to set up your board of directors, how to think about recruiting that board, your advisors, and how that changes as you grow as a company. I'd love to start with just sort of letting the audience get to know you a little bit. Maybe you could talk about sort of where you came from and how you got here. Sure. Uh, where I came from, a tiny town in upstate New York, but no, seriously. I started my career uh, as an accountant, and I realized very quickly that I liked the technology portion more than the finance portion. And so I got addicted to software and software businesses very early in my career. And I'm about a 25-year veteran of an operating in software companies as an executive from a developer all the way up to a CEO. And for the last five years, I've spent on the investing side and I found a niche that is underserved, which is the intersection between the operator and the investor and kind of being this translation layer. And I really enjoy it because it opens up so much value to both sides. And I just found a niche that way. Today, what I like to do is really be the interface between the two, because you can create a whole lot more value when you can accelerate to a common language. Every time I talk to you, I am reminded of how much I want to be like you when I grow up. Like, 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 you know, you're, you're doing all the things I want to do. Hey, you are like me, so, you know. <laughs> and also, you know, I think it's important that people understand, like, what a unicorn you are. Because, you know, you're a woman, you're a developer, you've been a CEO, an investor. Like, this is the path that so many of my friends want to take. And you've done it at rapid pace and very successfully. And you're still early in your career, which is just fantastic. Let's talk about this journey a little bit because you talked about working with founders. 
Let's imagine that my friend Betty and I decide to start a company. And Betty is uh, the sales CEO leadership kind of personality. You know, I'm the CTO. I'm going to probably build the prototype. And we're, we just sit down to dinner and we've decided we're going to go do this. We, we've set forth on a mission. At what point have we started a startup? Look, I think that the funny part about that is I think you said Betty and someone else and you sit down to dinner. One of the things that I always tell co-founders or people who are going to found a company together is that it is a relationship. Like it is just like you would be getting married or in a serious relationship. And so you really have to like that person as a person because there's going to be some highs and some lows and you just you have to have enough grounding to get through it. So some people try to spend a lot of time in the beginning, really kind of really nailing out the equity and all of these other things because that's what they read. Others just kind of jump right into it and, and that comes later. I think that what you want to do is put together an agreement of understanding what you're going to do, what I'm going to do, and how that's going to split what the day-to-day -day is going to look like because in the end, you want to have, especially if it's co-founders, you want to have complementary skills. But I think you don't want to spend too much time up front on, you know, the structure of the company, because ultimately you need to find product market fit. And you can keep revisiting the structure of that company as you grow. But you just really want to try to get, do we want to work together? Can we find a fit? Most of the time there's a problem you're trying to solve, but how you solve it, is it going to stick? And I think that needs to be the area that you start with. And from there, you know, decide how you're going to get funding or how you're going to fund it uh, and how much time each person is going to put in and those kind of things. But don't spend too much time on that structure, kind of get going, but keep revisiting that structure as you evolve. I, I see this scenario quite often talking to early stage companies. Oftentimes it's two founders. They've been friends for a long time. They've worked together a long time. They know each other well, and they're either frustrated at the lack of a solution to a problem they're facing, or they just see a market opportunity and think that they have a unique way of solving that problem. So let's say that we've done that. Let's say that Betty and I have worked together for years and we've decided that you'll start this company and we have sat down and sort of organized how much time we're each gonna spend on it and what we're gonna focus on. And now, you know, I'm building a prototype and, and Betty is sort of lining up some of the first people that might experience that prototype as, you know, early adopters maybe. Are we a company now or or what else do we have to do before we are officially an entity? <laughs> the funniest thing today, and you can see the, uh, the the interesting names that are everywhere, but I think, you know, you need a name, you need an identity. And I think that a lot of people, you might come up with a name, but most companies are made now by what domains are available, right? So you <laughs> That's <laughs> you right. Create a name. So, so I think like, look, you can create a company that kind of runs through your personal taxes, but I think ultimately you need a name of the company and an identity and a purpose. And then you can have just a simple agreement of the two individuals who are owners, one of them saying maybe one of them is putting money in and only 20 hours a week and the other person is putting in 60 hours a week. You know, just some kind of agreement from that perspective with a name and then how you're going to get started. Now, if you're taking funding from someone else, that's a little bit different because at the point that you take funding either from friends and family or anything, you now have the fiduciary responsibility of 
being the steward of that money and you really need to put a little bit more structure around it. So if you are self-funding or bootstrapping through your own time and equity or even through sales to fund it, it's a little bit different. You can have more loose structure of the company, but as soon as you take someone else's money, you really need to put the structure around it and update those individuals because in essence, they're a form of shareholders. And what sort of structure are you talking about? When you say structure, what do you mean? It's a structure just in terms of, a, is it going to be an LLC? Is it going to be an S corp, a C corp? Is it, is it going to be a partnership? So the structure just from the entity of getting a, a tax ID as well as uh, the equity structure, right? So it's your basic accounting, your basic finance, your basic kind of balance sheet P&L. And you don't necessarily have to have that in place if you're not taking money from someone at first because you're just kind of starting out and then you can decide to do it when you get a little bit more cash. But I think it starts with a name and then it just depends on where you're getting equity from. And usually also what kind of experience the people have. If they have experience doing it, they want to go directly to this really structured contract. Okay, so Betty and I have gotten a prototype. We're headed toward an MVP. We've started talking to some key customers. Let's just first of all say that we haven't gotten investors yet. Let's assume we're bootstrapping till we get a little bit farther along. In this scenario, how should we think about either forming our board of directors and or our group of advisors that are helping us along this path? Look, I, I think that when you're first starting out at this stage, which is really early, it's as a founding team, you have to have a point of view. And sometimes too many voices are just distractions. So I, I really like it when I see that, you know, these two people have gotten together or whatever the number of people is. They rent an Airbnb because everyone's remote these days, but whatever it is, they kind of submerge for three weeks, four weeks, six weeks, whatever it is, depending on what the problem they're trying to solve. And they really kind of get a prototype working and get a point of view because entrepreneurship is you're going to do something that no one else has done before. And you can ask all these ideas, but in the end, you have to have a starting point for people to give you feedback from. I think that in the early days, it's kind of like, put your blinders on and just get to work, right? And then start to get feedback when you have something that is working or you want to kind of understand how to monetize it or use relationships. So early on, I, I really think less is more. <laughs> and then when you hit a certain point, you want to start to add in an advisor or two or three, but you better make sure those advisors understand where you are in the process because they're going to give you conflicting advice. And in the end, the most precious time that you have in the beginning of a company, always, by the way, but certainly in the beginning is you, you're going to run out of capital or time to allocate to it. And so you have to be super judicious about how you spend that time. So your advisors should be few and far between until you start to get kind of enough of the clay to be able to really do something with that feedback and be able to move the product that you're offering and getting sales. You know, you know for the companies or the young founders that I advise, I've seen a, a wide variation of sort of how they leverage their advisors. Some do it really well, some do it really poorly. Let's assume that this company has a couple of advisors. What advice would you give the founders on how to use them effectively? I think that the, the biggest thing I see is people are like, my advisors are there to be my problem solvers. 
my advisors are there to be my counselor, my advisors are there to be my sales, whatever it is that they have. But most of the time they think they're there to solve their problems. In the end, you run the company. And so the best way to structure the use of those advisors is to go with a point of view. We're going to go in this direction. I'm thinking this for these reasons. And then ask them to validate, is it a good way to go? Is it not a good way to go? Or what feedback they have versus going to your advisor and saying, what should I do? You have to have a point of view. And even if that point of view is by the time you get through that discussion with that advisor, it changed. You've got to start the conversation with a point of view. Because other than that, it's your advisor really kind of running the company and you really should do your homework. And after a while, you may not get an advisor that wants to work with you if you do that too many times. That, that makes really good sense. And then let me flip the table. Let's say you're the advisor and you're working with this early stage founder. What can you do as an advisor to make sure that you're being as helpful as possible? In this case, let's say a first time founder without a lot of experience working with people like you. I think that, you know, advisors, they come in all different flavors and, you know, there's no certification or anything for it. It's advisors. And I think when people are early on in the advisor capacity, they have a lot of operational experience, meaning they work for a company. And so they immediately kind of mirror the actions that they were taking. Like they just want to get in there and solve that problem. And they perpetuate the behavior of come to me with your problems. Let's solve this together because it's so close to what they knew. As you evolve as an advisor, you realize that you need to kind of be hands off, but it's really hard sometimes <laughs> for us, right? It is really hard sometimes, but you have to help reposition. So if they come to you with a problem, you have to be like set the expectations of, well, what would you do? And kind of really set the expectations. And next time this happens, it would be more productive if you come to me with this and we can use our time better, right? So you're you're helping them, you're answering their question, but you're also teaching them how to work with an advisor in a constructive way. And I think oftentimes when people are first-time advisors, they don't know how to do it either. So sometimes you have those relationships where they're both learning, which is always interesting. That That's really great advice. I, I know that for me as an advisor, and, and you've helped me learn this, by the way, but you know, CEOs and founders are really busy. They have a very tight premium on their time. And my nature is to be very consultative. And so sometimes that that's not the right way to act because when your founders or your people you're advising are asking you for your opinion or what you think about things, sometimes they just really want to know like directly without beating around the bush, tell me what you think. And I've noticed the more direct I am, the better those conversations go. Yes, we've had those discussions. There's a time and a place for the art of the possible. Sometimes it's out at the bar having a drink. Sometimes it's maybe when they've invited you for like a planning session. It's art of the possible. But most of the time, time and resources are at a premium. So waxing eloquently about something that is not relevant to what they're facing right then isn't helpful. It's not a good use of time for them because they just, they can't sort it out. So getting to the point very quickly, really setting the stage for what are we going to talk about during this session, this advisory session. And again, this is not a dissertation or, you know, an agenda. It's just more like, what is the two or three things you want help with? Like, let's set that agenda and then the advisor also kind of making sure that it doesn't weave off because you want to make sure they're getting the best use of their time. Because in the end, one of the things you have to do with entrepreneurship is by design, entrepreneurs have full of ideas and they just kind of go from idea to idea to idea and you have to bring them back 
to move. So you can't perpetuate that as an advisor. Otherwise, you run out of money and time. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, I've definitely seen that. Um, and thank you for the coaching along the way. It's, it's gotten better. <laughs> uh, partly because I've, I've just become less patient. And so I think it's become easier. That's exactly it. So as a new advisor, you're so like, oh, this is so great. People want to hear me. But then you kind of get a rhythm and you're just like, okay, yeah, this is going to take too long. So like that comes with experience. So that's what I meant. It was a great example. Okay. So now let's assume that the company started to grow and we've decided to go out and raise our first round of financing. Let's start with the seed round, which is where many people start nowadays. So once we've done that, um, we're going to have to have a board of directors and periodic meetings. I think that I back up a bit and say most companies don't need to have a board of directors until they take an institutional round of funding. Now that doesn't mean they don't have a board of advisors, but they don't have to have really that board of directors from a governance perspective until they get to a certain round of funding. You have limited time, limited funds, and when you set up a board, there's administrative things that go to it. I would encourage them if they don't have institutional funding, meaning larger rounds, to really do an advisory board. And when you do an advisory board, do it to like one year terms because your company changes so much and what you need from advisors in the beginning is different to what you might even need six months down the road. It's just you have different skills than I do, Josh. I have different skills than other people. You know, you really want to have that flexibility where a board tends to have a much longer perpetual kind of serve. It's not perpetual. It's much longer in duration in terms of timing. So I think advisory boards work really well in the beginning with stated durations of about a year. Okay, that's that's great feedback. Let's assume that this round we've just raised is from an institutional investor. You talked about sort of there's more detail and structure you have to do there. Let's peel the layers of that onion back a little bit. What are those things and who would you have help you with that if you were a young founder without someone leading you down that path? So most of the first rounds of institutional funding, your investor is going to help you set up that board from a governance financial perspective, right? Those things that are needed because in the end, they're usually taking money from someone else entrusted with management of that money and in turn, they're giving it you. So they have to put a level of governance in there. So they're going to help you with that structure because it's part of the way they work. In terms of that structure works well for financial governance, it doesn't work as well for operational expertise. So I think what the CEO needs to do is first let it settle for a little bit. <laughs> first that you get it, kind of let it settle, grow into the governance because it is a change and it impacts kind of some of the things that you do on a quarterly basis or you know even on a monthly basis. So kind of let it settle in a little bit of change and then assess what you need as a CEO. Like if I had someone who was in these meetings or I could call, who's going to be helpful to me? And the way you decide that is, what am I good at? If I'm good at sales, I probably don't need someone who's good at sales on my board. If I'm not good at pricing or marketing or whatever that is, you want to round that board out with independence because most of the people at the board at this point will be whoever the founders are and that institutional investor. So you wanna establish independent board seats and they're really selected by the CEO. And the CEO should be looking at 
how do I want to round out my skills? Who do I want in that room to help me against the investors sometimes? And I don't mean against, because that's not the right word, but you, you need a balanced view. And investors aren't operators. It's really the CEO. And again, it, this is not adversarial. This is more of, there is a governance aspect. One of the things that I like to help first-time founders who just get institutional funding with is helping them to have the governance just be a byproduct of a strategic review. Because if you use that board effectively as board members and that board meeting, it's one of your largest strategic growth levers if you use it that way. So I always say the governance stuff should just be a check the box. You're in a room for two hours, three hours, you maybe dinner the night before where you have the undivided attention from this group of individuals who in, during that time are dedicated to you. But you as the CEO have to orchestrate and facilitate a strategic conversation as well. And you need to make sure that the people around the table, they're of equal weight because it's that debate and the opinions that actually come up with strategic value. It's not one person being louder than the other one. You know, so often I've been in board meetings and, you know, the weeks of preparation leading up to them. And in the meeting, it's felt like we were mostly there for the investor. You know, like the investor with, with their fiduciary responsibilities have sort of forced us in this room quarterly to provide them an update. And I've not seen very many. I have seen a few CEOs do a really good job of making you know high quality use of that time as you said what's the difference like like if i were a first time ceo and i was preparing for that first board meeting and you were coaching me what would you tell me to do to be sure i get value out of that time well the first thing i help the ceos understand when i'm working with them which i'm I do all the time. So I'm trying to back into it. I start with a new CEO, I probably once a quarter to try to help them with this because I think it's so important. I try to tell them like that meeting, yes, there's a governance aspect to it, but it that should be a byproduct. So I really try to get them to change their mindset from it being a board meeting and I'm doing this for the board meeting to a mindset of when you're in a small company that's scaling, Every quarter is like dog years. So you're actually redoing your strategy on a quarterly basis. And the board meeting itself is just a way, a habit stack from Atomic Habits, habit stack, right? Looking at your strategy. So use it to look at your strategy. What did I do? What's working? What do I need to change? What actions am I gonna do? And really take control of the conversation as a strategic review that happens to also meet some governance requirements. But then how am I going to direct the conversation? So earlier, when we talked about how do you work with an advisor, you don't go to your advisor with problems, you go, I'm thinking this, what do you guys think? That's the same thing that you do in a board meeting. You don't go, what should I be doing? You go, this is what we're planning on doing. Now the board, strategically, they go, well, that's a good idea, or it's not a good idea, but they're just dialoguing because you facilitated the conversation because you set up the review to be a strategic conversation 
versus a slide flipping. So the first thing I try to do before we go to anything is to get them to want to do this, change their mindset from it being, oh my gosh, I've got to do this. Like, no, I get to do this board meeting and I get the attention of these people who are very busy and they're focused on me this whole time. I'm going to use it. So the first thing I do is get people to get that mindset. I was scribbling down the name of the book, Atomic Habits. So I don't want to forget that. One of my favorite board chairmen, my friend Randy Jacobs, I, I've been in meetings with him where I would say, well, this is what I'm thinking. And he would say, well, to my ear, that sounds like the worst idea in the history of the world. <laughs> and, and that's like his catchphrase. And every time I hear someone say that, it just cracks me up and brings me back to those meetings with him. And then your response should have been, well, thank you for your opinion. I'm still going to do it, but noted. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you, the first scenario you listed was a CEO who maybe is weaker in sales. And so they go out and recruit like a sales you know, leader or, to help on their board. Let's assume that as a CEO, first time I'm, I'm weak in sales. Like that's an area that we just don't have a lot of expertise in. And so now I'm looking for this independent board member to help advise us on sales strategy. What should I look for specifically? Because I've seen board members that are everything from active sales execs working inside companies to people that are so past, so far beyond active that it's sort of hard to get them engaged and plugged in. So I think it's a great question and they are all of that, right? I like to say that most often the advisor themselves, an advisor is sometimes an advisor, but they also will be a board member they get to a point where they know when they're the right ones for that role or not, because through experience, they will self-select out. So I always like to see that because you have more experience. But I'd say the first and foremost you want to know is that when you select an independent board member as a CEO, you're selecting them. Sometimes the, you'll have an investor who's a board member strongly suggest, but in the end, it's really the seats that you're picking as the CEO to kind of round out and, and help you. So first and foremost, you got to get along with them. They got to have a vibe. You got to be able to pick up the phone and feel comfortable and, you know, a little vulnerable, but you got to have a good working relationship. If you don't, like, don't put them on your board. That's number one. The second is like, what's the person's why? Like, why do they want to be on your board? Sometimes it's just because they want to help you. Sometimes it's because they want to help your head of sales because they want to mentor that person. Sometimes it's because they just absolutely love the space and want to help from that perspective. Sometimes they're just bored in their regular job and want to do something different, right? Like whatever it is, find out their why. And when you find out their why, you can then match it to, is it what you need? Like, is their why what you need? Like you might on paper think they're perfect, but if their why is they're bored at their job, and you need someone who's passionate about the space, well, like, they're not a bad person, they're just not good for your why, right? Like, so I don't know that that's the best example, but it's a relationship and the CEO is really picking those independent board seats. You wanna make sure you can get along with them, you wanna understand their why and does it align with you. And then the other thing that you wanna do is someone might be a really good sales executive and they were so good at their last company and they killed it, and you then want them on your board. They're not running your company. So 
do they mentor well? Because they're not going to be your head of sales, right? Have they been an advisor? Do they mentor? Do they mentor people? Are they going to spend time with whoever you've hired as the head of sales? Are they going to help you hire someone for the head of sales? And then are they going to be the mentor for that person? Because it's a lot of times what they do. If not, they could be a really good sales exec, but that doesn't mean they'd be a good board member because you have to learn how to be an advisor and it's hard. It was hard for me. It was hard for you. When you first kind of make that transition to an advisor, it's a little bit rocky. <laughs> so used to just being in charge and, and, you know, not because you're, you know, yeah. kind of a power freak, but it's just more like that was your job to like get things done. And it's, it's just a different role. So I think it's, it's understanding that. And then the other thing that people sometimes miss is that you want your board members to be highly networked because they should be an extension, whether or not they're helping you with sales because they're a sales expert, they're representing you in different meetings. You don't have a brand name, so their word of mouth is part of your marketing. So they gotta have a big network from that. They're helping find talent for you because that's what we do as executives anyway. Just, you know, we try to match people to their growth opportunities and find those matches. So you gotta be networked for that. You want to have good networks to help with deals. You want to have good networks to find the next funding round or an exit. So those people need to be highly, highly networked. So you want to find someone who's good at being a sales executive mentor and is also highly networked. Most salespeople are highly networked. It comes with the job, but sometimes CMOs aren't, sometimes CTOs aren't, right? So you want to make sure that they're highly networked because that's really what they're also bringing to the table is their extension of their network. That, that's a really fantastic point that I think inherently I knew, but I hadn't thought about to the extent that I would have said it out loud to somebody who asked me for advice. So you've made me a better advisor just now. Excellent. I, I also love that if I sort of repeat what I think I heard you say, it, it sounds like, hey, you've taken some institutional funding, you form your board, you've got the two founders, your institutional investor. You don't have to rush to get these these independent board members. You can take your time, figure out what you need and who's right. The other thing I heard you say is it's probably advantageous to choose someone that you've known for a while, that you know you get along with and you know, you can establish that rapport or at least take some time to get to know them. Yes, I think it's that because it, I don't think it's that most of us don't know, especially founders, because in that first part of starting a company, you are heads down working. It's what we talked about earlier. So a lot of times you don't know them, but you can get to know them. It takes about three months for me of, have, of got, getting to know someone before I know from a gut feel perspective. If it's eight o'clock at night and I'm watching TV with my wife and that person calls me and I see them on my caller ID, am I going to smile or groan? <laughs> and if I'm going to groan, it's probably not someone I should work with long term, at least in this kind of capacity. I, I agree. Often what I will do is when I've when I've been approached by someone, it's not a network of they they found me, you know, they, they found me through whatever conference, whatever it is, and they want me to be on the board. If I don't know them at all, I, I say, look, let's maybe start with like a three month engagement or even after like a call or two, I'll be like, it's not really a fit. And it's not because I can't help them or things. It's that it's that it it doesn't feel right. Right. And in the end, it's a it's a relationship. But I do like to start with that three month because 
because in three months you're going to know if it's a fit for you and a fit for them. And it's just a whole lot easier to do it not with the structure of the board. So you can start out as an advisor and often sometimes I'm an advisor for three months and then that's it. I mean, I'm always there to answer their call, but that's it. Or I say, you don't need me. You need someone who does this, right? Because in the end, it needs to be beneficial for both sides. I've also found that for me, at least, time zones can play a factor. And it seems to affect me more when I'm advising people that are west of me. You know, because if you're a startup founder, you're working a lot of hours, it's eight o'clock at night, you need some advice. You know, if you're in LA, it's 10 o'clock at my house, I'm in bed and you need to talk to someone. And so I think that for me, at least, it's not a deciding factor, but it can definitely inhibit how easy it is for us to talk on a regular basis. I think it's a good point, but I think the concept is a little bit bigger. So you say time zones, but to me, it's, it goes back to what's the why. So for me, I absolutely get jazzed by global expansions. I like to help companies kind of go from Europe to the US or US to Europe or to Asia. This is my, this is my thing. I like global range of companies because I like scale and I like global. So for me, because that's my why, I often am working with CEOs that are not anywhere in my time zone. I'm on the charge B board and they're headquartered in India, right? So my why is I will flex because I want to do it. So I think it's really understanding your why and your why or your boundaries is you want to sleep from these days. So then you have to find a match from that. So I think time zones is just one part of that why because you're going to make the time. So let's let's say now that, you know, we've we've been growing the company, we've got our institutional investor, we've picked up an independent or two over the years. Maybe we've taken on some additional capital and we're on a growth path that looks just awesome. We're up and to the right. We're starting to think that someday there's an IPO on our our roadmap. How does that change sort of how you think about your board? and your advisors once you've gotten past let's say 50 million in revenue or something so you know so when you're when you're on a path where you you think that's a, a likely target so all of the discussion that we've had so far around board advisors and boards have been very much on that private company you know it's not a public company and your advi- your board your advisors and your board are there to help you grow There's a governance aspect and there's not a single person who's not aware of the governance aspect, but they're there because they want you to be successful, whether it's because they have invested in you and they, everyone wins from that, or they're giving up their time for a portion of equity, but they are there to make you successful. And also they're going to get a win out of it, right? Because that's how the comp structures are. They're going to get like some percentage, the better you do, the better they're going to get compensated, right? That's how that's how it is. And while it's like that in public companies, public boards are much more governed by things that as a, in a private board, I can have conversations with people that on a public board, I could never have those conversations. So it's a very different feel. I really like private boards because I like to help operationally, but I couldn't have those same conversations with some of the people in the company if I was on a public board. So as you get closer to IPO, the structure of your board starts to get much more structured toward that public market. 
So you may have advisors. You don't need that many people on your board with operational expertise because by the time you get to that stage, if you've not hired the C-suites that can do it, you're in trouble. <laughs> That's the best way to put that, but I don't probably could say that a different way. But by the time you get to that stage, your board does start to get closer to the structure of a public company. And you don't need that expertise because you should have built up your C-suite at that point to cover a lot of what some of those operational advisors were helping you with early on. You know, if I think about what you just said a little bit and what we said earlier, it, it seems that one thing that you're kind of looking for are people that have been successful in the place you're trying to get to. You know, like early, right? In early stage, you're saying, hey, I think we're doing a couple million dollars in revenue. We're trying to grow to 20. That's a long-term goal for us. And I'm looking for people that have been really successful doing that. And then when you go to be, you know, sort of on the path toward filing an S1 and going out in the public market, you're maybe then looking for people that have operated on boards or as executives of those public companies. Is that right? Yes, because you're getting ready to go public, right? And when you go public, there's a different level of fiduciary responsibility and different rules in terms of being on a board of a public company. And I'm not saying that private company boards have no rules, but the public company have many more. So you really want that board to start transitioning to what a public company board would look like because one day you list and then now you're a public company and you really want to start transitioning your board, which will happen by nature of the investment investing cycles. I mean, it'll just happen by the nature of the transactions. But I don't think that someone just starting a company should worry about that because it's going to happen like through the process. But I will give an example of making sure that you're getting an advisor or when I say advisor, I mean board member. Like often we will, as I said before, be in a capacity of advisor before we go to a board role. So that's why I use that term interchangeably. But I was talking to a CEO late last week and the company is not that big in terms of revenue. It's about 10 million, depending on where you are. It's it's <laughs> at 10 million revenue, you probably have initial product market fit and you're still kind of scaling that initial product maybe start thinking about the second product. And that person has a very big network because they worked for a very successful company. But what happened is someone gave them advice to start adding like five different products, gave them advice that they should add five products and they should be going to five different countries. They're only uh, operating in one country. And I said, that's great advice, but that's not where you guys are. There's a playbook. So there's nothing wrong with the advice that the person gave them. It's just not applicable for their size. And the person who gave them that advice may never have worked at their size, so they don't know. And ultimately, does that company need to do everything that he just said to me, that CEO? Yes, but not until they're at like 60, 70, 80 million ARR. That's not something they should be doing at 10 million ARR. That's a great story. I, I was actually going to ask you next to tell some stories about these things because <laughs> I think sometimes those narratives really give color to what we're talking about here. And what you just said about there's a playbook to get there. I have this conversation every week, it seems like, because early stage founders, they want to skip steps in the playbook. You know, they, they want to scale before they've hit product market fit. They want to hire the wrong people at the right times. Like it is so hard. And, and can you tell us a story about, you know, a time when a board was put together 
with and once you started operating you just realized okay we have the wrong people in this room this is not working like how do you recover from that i think the first thing is that all boards if it's a board right versus an advisory board but a board of directors really needs to have three roles now when i say roles someone needs to be the chair of the board they need to kind of be like if you're on jury duty right that chair and often that chair is the ceo but if it's a first-time ceo and they've never run a board then them being the chair might not necessarily be the best but you want to make sure someone's the chair there's some administrative functions that go with that coordinating the meetings and things but they would also help facilitate this kind of conversation. So I think you need a chair, you need a secretary, and the secretary is to kind of record the minutes and do those things. And often the CEO in later stage companies, more experienced CEOs will be the chair as well. I think a good idea for an early stage company is to have one of their independent board members who's experienced at being a chair be the chair. Because what they're gonna do is help facilitate this conversation. It's not like you can go in and just upset seed your board, disruptive, it's not helpful. Often some of those seats are tied to in funding rounds. And so it's stepping back and thinking, is it the people in the board that aren't correct? Or is it the way the board meetings are being run? That is not that. So first is kind of getting to the problem. And then like everything, you try to have conversations. If someone's not fitting and the CEO appointed them, the CEO should have those conversations with that person and try to resolve it amicably. If it doesn't get resolved amicably, there is a set of governance things that you can do to resolve it. But that's also why I think that in the early stage of companies, I think it's good for those independent board members to have a specific term because it's at that point of the term that you can easily make those changes as well. That's great advice. What about a time where, you know, imagine one of the most well-oiled, smooth operating, effective boards that you've seen. Like what characteristics do you think made that board just ultra effective? I think that a board, again, for a private company, not public, a board isn't just in a room for a meeting. You have a lot of back channel conversations to make sure that you're not giving conflicting advice or if two people in a particular board just don't agree on something, you find a way offline so that you can come to the board you know, with a resolution to make it productive. So I think the best boards are boards that facilitate discussions offline and that they're helpful, but not aligning just to align. Like they're not like in jury duty, let's just get this aligned so we can get out of here. Now I'm not saying that should be the way, but some people are like that. It's more of like you're aligning because you're ultimately trying to get the best value and the best experience. And you're also, when you take roles on a board of a private company, you do this on a public company too, but more so in private company, you're not just trying to grow that company, you're trying to grow people. You're trying to grow, give them opportunities, grow them into executives, right? Have them go off to another scale up, you know, as an experienced CEO, right? If it's the first time or the second time. So you get a lot of joy out of growing companies and the financial reward, but ultimately you want to grow people. And the best way that you can show a founding team maturity is to show maturity as a board member with your fellow board members. So kind of lead by example. 
Shelly, this has been fantastic. We're already out of time, unfortunately. You've been an absolute joy to have on the show, and I will absolutely have you back on the show soon. And if it's okay, I'll probably bother you in between because this has spawned several questions that I have, and I'm going to need your help on some things I'm working on. So thank you so, so much for your time today. This was great. Absolutely. That's it, everyone, and thank you for joining Capital Geek. Subscribe via Apple, Stitcher, or any platform where you usually find fantastic podcasts. Tune in again soon for another great episode of Capital Geek.